talking to Pastor Frankie um, about the Rev Christmas tea a few weeks ago, and I was sharing with him what I shared with the ladies, and he's like, Sarah, you need to share that on Wednesday night, and so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of share a, a word that we had with the Rev team, and the Lord gave me the word mercy, and I was like, well, Lord, you know, I'm praying for this revelation of Christmas, and all I have is this one word, this one word, mercy. And my favorite Christmas story is actually the one that Pastor Lance read tonight. It's in Luke, because it kind of tells the story from this beautiful perspective of, of Mary, and she treasured these things in her heart, and she goes and she sees her friend, and it's the angels and the shepherds and the stable. And I just connect to that story. And I wanted to kind of branch out tonight, and the Lord gave me that word mercy, and so I started reading the Christmas story in Matthew. And I don't know if you guys have ever read the Gospel of Matthew, but when I opened it up and I started reading Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the ancestry of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. I fell asleep right there because I was like, I'm sure this is a good man, but this is not how you start a story. You got to hook them in the beginning, you know? Have you ever bought a book and you read the first page and you were sorry you read the, you know, you bought the book? You're like, and I read all the time. I read like 50 books a year. So I pretty much know like four or five pages in that this is going to be a good book or this is going to be a book that I'm like, so I'm reading this first verse and I'm like, Lord, are you sure this is the, are you sure this is the Christmas story for me this year? Are you sure this is the revelation you have for me? Where is this mercy? Where is this mercy? And I felt the Holy Spirit come to me and he said, well, find out more about who Matthew is. Find out a little bit about the author. And sometimes, you know, if you read a lot like me, you pretty much know what to expect when you learn this author and you learn how they write and what they write and what their interests are. And so I go to Matthew chapter 9, and I look and I find out who this, who this Matthew is. And Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 tonight. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. But Matthew is a tax collector. So he is a Jewish person that's been hired by the Romans to tax other Jewish people. And his encounter with Jesus is that he's on a street corner. It says he's sitting on his, in his tax collector's booth, and Jesus comes up to him and says, come, follow me. And Matthew does it. Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. He invites Jesus to his home. He invites him to meet his friends. And Matthew's sort of this outcast. He doesn't have a lot of friends among the Jewish community. Can you imagine if your only job was to tax the people that you know and love? The Romans, he earned his living on the commissions he got from taxing you. He got a cut of the take. So imagine if the IRS only got paid if they audited you. That is not fun. <laughs> And so Matthew really isn't very popular among his friends, and he's not very popular among the Romans either because he's just been hired to do this job. So he's got nowhere to go. So he invites Jesus into his home, and he introduces Jesus to all of his friends. And I love the way that Scripture describes his friends. It says that they were the most disreputable sinners. That's a polite way of saying he was hanging out with some bad people. You know, I always am encouraged by Matthew's testimony because I remind myself that you catch a fish before you clean a fish. A lot of times we have unrealistic expectations for our friends and our loved ones who come to the Lord. The Lord saves them and then he changes them. 
He doesn't clean them first, and then they come to salvation. Salvation is a gift where you come into a knowledge of who God is, and you experience his mercy and his grace, and then day by day, he is changing you into a likeness of himself. And so when I meet friends or I have, you know, good loved ones that I've been praying for for a long time, I can't get discouraged that they aren't changing because you catch a fish before you clean a fish. And so Matthew is sitting in his house with all of his friends and the Pharisees walk by and they say, how is it that you are keeping company, Jesus, with this crowd? Do you not even know who is in this house with you right now? And I can just picture Matthew hanging on every single word of Jesus because he's got nowhere else to go. He has left everything. He's left his career. He's, he's left his, his livelihood. And his friends now are watching to see what happens next. Matthew's hanging on every single word. And I have been in that situation where I feel like I've invited Jesus into this situation or this season of my life, and then the accuser's right there in my ear saying, well, you did it again. You fell. Sarah, you're never going to change. Sarah, this situation's never going to get any better. I don't know why you think his mercy's new every morning because it, it expired last night at midnight. Every day. So, you know, I've been in there, and I have had to turn to the Lord with the accuser in my ear and hang on every word he has to say because I got nowhere else to go. So Matthew's sitting there, and he's listening to what's going to come out of Jesus' mouth next. And Jesus says something so profound in Matthew chapter 9. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he goes on and he says, go and learn what this means in verse 13. I desire mercy. That is a readiness to help those in trouble. I desire not sacrifice and sacrificial victims. For I came not to call and invite the righteous, but the sinners. I had it. I realized if there was one disciple, if there was one apostle who knew a lot about mercy, it was going to be Matthew. And I was like, that's the dude whose Christmas story I want to read. Because Matthew could not go back to what he had. Peter, James, and John could always go back to fishing if things didn't work out with Jesus, right? Dad owned the company in James and John's situation. And Peter was doing well himself. And in fact, after the resurrection, that's what they were doing. They went back to fishing. But where's Matthew going to go? Matthew's got no place to go. And so I'm like, yeah, that's the Christmas story I want to read. That guy knows mercy. That guy was sitting on a street in a booth doing his day job. And Jesus said, come and follow me. And Matthew did it. Matthew knows mercy. Matthew had nothing to offer Jesus. His friends weren't even that good a company. But what he offered Jesus was his heart, and he said, I'll follow you. And that's where mercy starts for all of us. We all start somewhere with Jesus where we pick up and we say, yeah, I'll follow you. And we don't look back. And that's mercy. So that's the Christmas story I wanted to read. So I went back to Matthew chapter 1, and I thought, it's going to get better. All right, now I know who the author is. And I picked up and I started reading verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And I'm like, nope, 
This man is still an accountant. He cannot write novels. He can tax people all day long, but he can't write a story to save his life. God bless him. That's what we say in the South. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. Because Matthew was good at his job. Matthew has an eye for detail. Matthew knows how to keep really strong records. There was something in Matthew that Jesus knew would make the kingdom of heaven stronger. And there is something in each of you that he sees that will make the kingdom of heaven stronger and hell scared. And that's why he reaches out to you just like he did Matthew. So Matthew's got this gift for detail. And so I'm like, okay, I get it. The guy is a spreadsheet guy. And I have a little bit of a tender heart when it comes to spreadsheet guys. I'm married to a spreadsheet kind of guy. I am not a spreadsheet person. I see things from 5,000 feet, right? Let's redecorate the house. I don't know how much that's going to cost. I just want paint and furniture. And Todd's like, money, 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 which is a total buzzkill <laughs> for people like me. Is anybody here in a relationship where somebody, you know, I don't, balance my checkbook. I wait for the bank to tell me I'm out of money. I'm just being honest with you guys, you know, which is problematic. <laughs> so I get that Matthew's a spreadsheet guy, and my husband is very linear, and he's very accountant-oriented. And in fact, we were married maybe six months, and I discovered this about him. I should have discovered that, you know, before we got married. But I found this spreadsheet, this elaborate, like, five-year plan. And we were so poor, guys, when we first got married. Everybody has their, like, poor story, you know, when you first get married. We were so poor, we couldn't afford the R. We were po. We were that poor. We could not even afford the R. Our furniture came from Goodwill. When we finally had enough money for real furniture, we went to give it back to Goodwill. They wouldn't take it. <laughs> Have you ever been rejected by Goodwill? Yeah. The Stevens have. So I found this really elaborate spreadsheet. And really, we paid our ties, we paid our rent, and we bought groceries. And that was our whole budget, because we were out of money at that point. And I found this elaborate like budget for five years, and there were all these different categories. And I thought, maybe we make more money than I thought. This is incredible. And so, Todd, what is all of this? And he said, well, Sarah, this is a five-year plan. And what I've taken into account here is your earning potential, the cost of living, you know, the D.C. metro area, rent's going up. I think we're going to have to buy a new car. And I said, well, what are these columns right here? And he said, well, I've penciled in for us to conceive some children here at year two and year four. And he said, and if you'll look nine months later, I'm assuming we're going to have to start feeding them as well. I said, yeah, that totally happens. But I said, Todd, this kind of takes the romance out of it. Like, he said, well, what did you want to do? I said, I wanted to wake up one day and say, let's have a baby. I didn't want to have to look at a spreadsheet first. Oh, hey, today's the day. <laughs> Good news for me, <laughs> you know? And he's like, no, that's not how we do things. I was like, so we do things, and I'm 50% of this occasion. So... So I get the spreadsheet mentality. I get that Matthew is, he's, he just can't help it. He thinks in details. He thinks in, in spreadsheets, and he's so specific. And so you keep reading in verse 3, Matthew 1, verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez, Zariah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Aram. And I said, wait a second. Why a woman? Why does he start mentioning these women? It's not a mistake. I mean, this guy, 
he only gets paid if you pay taxes, and the Romans are counting on him doing his job well. So this isn't just like an oversight on his part or a last-minute thought. Let me just throw in the mom's name. So he starts mentioning the women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I want to submit to you that the reason that he mentions women is because these women's story spoke to his heart because they demonstrate the immeasurable mercy of Jesus Christ. And he goes, you know what? I got something in common with this woman and this woman and this woman and this woman because I was in an impossible situation and God stepped out of nowhere and met me where I was at, and my life has never been the same. And I am going to write a Christmas story where anybody, anywhere, whether it's now or in 2,000 years, if they're sitting in Bethlehem or they're sitting in the Woodlands, Texas, can pick this book up and realize that God will come and meet you right where you are, and that his mercy is immeasurable. So there are five women that Matthew mentions in his, in his lineage of Jesus Christ. And it's 28 generations. It's 3,000 years. The guy was thorough, way too thorough maybe. But it was a good, it's a good thing he mentioned these women. And the first one he talks about is a woman named Tamar. And Tamar's story is in the book of Genesis. And the only thing you need to know about Tamar is that Tamar was betrayed by three different men. She was married to an evil man, and God killed him. She was married to another evil man, and God killed him and betrayed by his actions. And then her father-in-law, who was Judah, deceived her and kept her from an agreement that they had struck a bargain. And so Tamar is this woman that I say has a case of the can't-help-its. So she realizes she's been wronged, and she can't help it. She's got to fix it and put her hands on it. And so the long story short is she dresses up in disguise as a prostitute. She seduces her father-in-law and gets pregnant, and that's how she ends up with an heir and her inheritance. Not a lot of redeeming things that I can say about that situation. But I will tell you that what I learned from that situation is when we get out ahead of God and we get a case of the can't help it, we have to put our hands all over it. We got to fix it. We got to fix it. We got to fix it. Now, guys get a bum rap. You know, women a lot of times accuse their husbands of like having, oh, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen to me. Just hear me out. I, I have the same problem. Don't tell me your problems because I'll have it fixed before you take a breath. I'd be like, girl, this is what you need to do. You need to drop that man like a hot potato. You know what I'm saying? You get off that Twitter thing, get, change your name, and start a new life. 2016 is going to be that joke of free. You know, that'll be, you know, I got a case of the can't help it because I just want to fix it for people. And I got to tell you, Tamar is in the Christmas story because God knows we all have this propensity to want to do for ourselves, to want to get out ahead of him to want to try to put our hands on it and fix it. And Pastor Frankie's been challenging us all year. If you could move the needle in a certain situation in your life, you already would have done it. But there are some things only prayer can change. <laughs> there are some things only God can do God's way and in his time. I had a revelation recently. God is God and I am not. <laughs> Revelatory, 37 years old. Like a rhema word, 
God is God and I am not. And he is good at his job. He is good at his job. And so Tamar's in the Christmas story to remind us, when you got a case of the can't help it, don't do it. Don't put your hands on it. But God redeems her situation because when you are in covenant with him, when you are repentant, he brings restoration and he is able to work all things together for your good. And that is how a woman named Tamar ends up in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The next woman that Matthew mentions is a woman named Rahab. Now, she's a little bit more famous. We all know her story. She was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, and when the Israelites were going to take the land, they sent the spies in, and she hid the spies, right? And her courage is what we remember her for. I mean, so amazing that she risked her own life for two perfect strangers. She didn't know anything about them other than that they were a part of the Israelite camp. And this is the thing about Rahab. Her courage was amazing. Her courage was outstanding. Her, her courage saved the lives of the spies. But God spared her life because of her faith. She has this confession and she tells the spies, I know that God has given you this land and I know that he will give you this city. And so you serve the living God. Remember me and my family. That is what saved her life. So many times when you and I are in a situation, we feel like we're under siege. We're under siege with the sickness. We're under siege with a financial hurdle we can't meet. We're under siege in a relationship that we just can't have a peace about. And a lot of times we have a bunch of courage and we put on a good face and we join the I'm fine club. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are things going? Oh, they're fine. They're fine. I have never yet met someone who I said, well, how are things going? Oh, my gosh, they're terrible, Sarah. Pray for me right now. And either y'all have much better lives than I have, <laughs> or we all feel like God can do more with our courage than our faith. I'm here to tell you, when you are under siege, don't try to be strong. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. Call out to him. He is the living God. He is the living God, and that is what saves Rahab's life, that she was faithful. God can do more with your faith than he can do with your courage. And that's how she ends up in the lineage of Jesus Christ. We keep moving, and we get a woman named Ruth, and Ruth is another famous one. She is a widow at a very young age, and she is poverty-stricken. She has no means of supporting herself, and it's just Ruth and her mother-in-law. And Ruth is this this testament to us that when you don't know what you should do, do what you should and do what you can. Do what you should and do what you can. Ruth is simply gleaning in the fields of this very wealthy man named Boaz. And sometimes when we don't know what to do, we assume that nothing is the right choice. And sometimes rest and nothing, if we're waiting on the Lord, is the right choice. But sometimes we just have to reach out and say, God, what would you have me do? What should I do? And just be obedient to that. Just be obedient to that. She's out there and she's gleaning in the fields and the master Boaz sees her. And her character, I think, is what spoke to him and struck a chord with him. Because when you are doing what you can and doing what you should and doing what you can and doing what you should, God can do what you cannot. He can make you find favor in the master's field. He can make your relationships accelerate to a place where you need them to be in your career. 
with your children and the time you have lost and the hurt that you have in your marriage, though it's beyond words. At this point, it's up to Jesus. If you will do what you should and do what you can, God will do what you can't. And that's how the woman Ruth ends up in the lineage of Jesus Christ and in the Christmas story. Mercy after mercy after mercy. Every woman is at a place where aside from the mercy of God, her situation would not have changed. She would have stayed exactly where she was. But our God isn't like that. Our God does not see us struggle and not move to respond to us. And that is the Christmas story. He sees creation in the garden break a covenant with him. And in the very breath that he's doling out consequence, he tells Eve, there is hope. I am going to give you a way to redeem yourself. And he is coming, and it is the son of Eve who comes and reconciles man to God. And so God is sitting here, and he's like, I've been waiting for just the right time. The Christmas story, I've been waiting for right this. I've had a Messiah in the wings. I've had a Messiah in the wings. And you tonight, you are in your situation, and you've been walking in it, and you've been walking in it, and you've been walking in it. And I want to tell you, God is not far away. He is not disinterested. He has been waiting for just the right time, just the right time to be able to send you what you need, whether you're Tamar, whether you're Rahab, whether you're Ruth. He sees your situation and he responds to it. So the fourth woman that Matthew mentions, it says, Jesse, the father of King David, King David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. I love Matthew because he's not lying to anybody. He's very specific who, the woman who had been the wife of Uriah. He doesn't come right out and say, I'm talking about Bathsheba. Because everybody knows Bathsheba's name, right? You know, there's so many of us where we have something in our past that we feel like has marked us for the rest of our lives. And Bathsheba's got this situation, and she teaches us that one wrong decision does not mean that the rest of your life has to pay for it. <laughs> one wrong decision does not change the trajectory of your life, does not alter the destiny and the call that God has for you. She made a mistake, it cost her the life of her husband, and it cost her the life of her lover's child. But when for repentance comes restoration, you know, for nine months, she and David are kind of playing it cool, they're relaxing, they think they've gotten away with it, and then all of a sudden the prophet Nathan shows up, and he starts talking to him, and he tells him the parable of the lamb. There was this poor man, and he only had one lamb, and there was this rich man who had many lambs, and the rich man took the poor man's lamb and sacrificed it for some guests so that they could have some food to eat, and David was outraged at the injustice, and this man should pay for his crimes, and this is wrong. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. You could have any wife you wanted, and you took Uriah's wife. And David goes, you are right, I have sinned, and he repents, and his wife with him, because he took Bathsheba as his wife. And I'll tell you what, I'm so encouraged by that, because with repentance comes restoration. There are, there are seasons in my life where I have been very sorry for the things I have done, but not repentant, and I can't figure out why the consequences won't stop. I'm like, God, I'm really sorry about that, but I don't repent. 
which means stop doing it. Tell God to give you the strength to stop doing it and not do it again and put it under the blood of Jesus, Jesus Christ. I'm just sorry I got caught doing it. Okay, I'm the only one who does that. <laughs> Man, tough crowd. I didn't know y'all were like right here. I was right here. It's true. And I can't figure out why I still am dealing with these consequences. I can't figure out why I'm not seeing progress in this area of my life. I can't figure out why I'm not receiving the benefit of forgiveness. And I realize it's because I haven't asked for it. And so Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, makes it into the Christmas story because she shows us that when you repent, the blood is able to do more than you ever thought possible. And what you have lost is not as good as what God has coming for you. Because he works all things together for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his plan. We sometimes say, all things work together for my good, and we don't finish the rest of the verse. For those who love God, and if we love God, we obey his commandments, right? And that's how it all comes together. And so Uriah's wife, Bathsheba and David, it says in the course of time that, that she was comforted. They were comforted. The Lord healed their hurt. He forgave them. And they conceived again. And they end up parenting, having a baby named Solomon, who becomes the wisest man to ever walk on the earth. He is Israel's greatest king. Israel has never known glory like they knew in Solomon's reign. And I think about that as a type and shadow of what is possible when we will lay our sins at the feet of Jesus. We can have peace immeasurable. We can have wisdom beyond our years. And we don't have to learn from experience anymore. We can have the counsel of the Holy Spirit saving us a whole lot of school of hard knocks. And that's how a woman named Bathsheba ends up in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And the last woman that Matthew mentions is a woman named Mary. And we all know Mary. And I love Mary's story because she shows me that when the Holy Spirit comes on an ordinary person on an ordinary day, God can do extraordinary things. Just an ordinary person, somebody who's just willing to be obedient, someone who's willing to be faithful. The Holy Spirit looks for those people. He doesn't look for the famous. He doesn't look for the influential. He doesn't look for those who are in the right position. He can take care of all of that. He just looks for somebody whose heart is obedient and faithful. And then he can pour himself out on that person and turn the whole world upside down. And he didn't just do it with Mary. You look back in the Old Testament, there's a dude named Gideon. Gideon, literally, the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and he said, behold, mighty man of valor. And Gideon did this. Are you talking to me? Like, it's in scripture. He said, no, I think you got the wrong guy. I am the least of the least of the least. And my family's the least. You definitely have the wrong guy. But it says that the Holy Spirit came upon Gideon, and all of a sudden he's a commander of the most successful military operations in the book of Judges. And then you look and he says, okay, well, we got another dude named Saul. Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament, is so afraid to be king of Israel when they go to anoint him. It's like, doo, 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 presenting King Saul. They can't find the guy. The guy is hiding in the baggage. The guy is gone. And Samuel's like, I didn't come here to look pretty. Go find me Saul. 
I'm ready to anoint this guy. And it says that Samuel speaks to Saul, and he tells Saul, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, Saul, you will start to prophesy in the name of the living God. And sure enough, King Saul starts prophesying and is a leader of leaders in a nanosecond because the Holy Spirit came upon him. The Holy Spirit. Then you've got a dude named Stephen. Stephen is an apostle in the New Testament church. He gives the best sermon he's ever preached in his life when he's on trial for his life because the Holy Spirit came on him and gave him utterance. I got to tell you something. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, there is no limit to what you can do. Sometimes all we need to do is ask him for the help. You know, I was, this, this is a true story. I am not changing the names to protect the innocent. This happened to me right, this was like my next to the last life group meeting. And I think most of you in my life group know this story. And if you don't, you're in for a treat. So I was having the worst possible morning. You ever have, and I, guys, just so you know, like I run a pretty tight ship. Like my kids know the clothes they're wearing for the week, shoes are on the steps, we do homework. It's like we get up in the morning and it is like clockwork. That's how we roll at La Casa Stevens because I have to roll like that. My, I don't have big margins, you know what I'm saying? No, you can't go to the bathroom. That is not on the schedule. Get in the car. Take care of it when you get to school. And one night, I was babysitting a friend, and I left the book bags in my friend's car, and I told my son, I said, hey, go to the car, get two book bags out of the car. My son is in this corner-cutting stage, right, where, like, for instance, I say, hey, go put these towels in the linen closet. He puts them in the hallway floor. Let's the dog run all over him and all that jazz. He's in this like corner cutting stage. And I told my husband, we have to nip this in the bud because if we don't handle it at, tw at seven, at 27, he's going to be living in our basement, playing video games, working retail, trying to find himself. <laughs> we are not having that. That is what happens to corner cutters. And that's not how we roll at La Casa Stevens. God bless my children. They have two type A parents. God bless them. That's why I'm glad Pastor Lance is the youth pastor. <laughs> Have fun with him. Come home to me. So I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there, and I'll see everything you're doing on Instagram because he taught me how to use it. So don't think you can hide. So my son cuts a corner, and he doesn't get two book bags. He gets one book bag, which, so it's pandemonium in the morning. And asking a kid to go to school without a book bag, guys, is like asking an adult to go all day without their phone. You can't do it. My whole life is on my phone. I'm serious. I don't know anybody's phone number. If I ever end up in jail, I'm, they're going to have to give me my phone to make my one phone call because I know nobody's phone number call Todd Stevens. That's how we do it. And so it's pandemonium. So I've got that going on. And, of course, life groups in 30 minutes. I don't have time to go track down a book bag. So I'm like, okay, all right, all right. So I figure something out. I get the kids to school. I think, okay, let me just put out this coffee cake. You know, I picked it up at the Target Supercenter last night. That's one less thing I have to do in the morning. I'll, I'll be right back. I don't need to kennel the dog. Big mistake. Big mistake. I get home after running the kids, and I'm checking the corners of the house for underwear. I'm checking the corners of the house for stuff the kids have left out, toilets that aren't flush. You know, it's typical mom stuff, mom problems. And I realize, oh my gosh, my dog has eaten half of my coffee cake. There's paw prints all over the kitchen. And this is a true story. I just turned that tablecloth inside out. It was the only one I had. My life group never knew. And I looked at that coffee cake long and hard. 
You ever look at something and see if you can cut the pieces off that the dog has chewed? Long and hard. I was like, Lord, you did miracles with five loaves and two fish. What can you do with half a coffee cake? <laughs> I am like at my wit's end. It is crazy. I'm mopping my floor. I only mop my floor when I have company. You guys might as well know that. I mop my floor again, and I'm like, I know it may not seem like a big deal to you, but I was, I was empty. I had held it together for as long as I could hold it together, and I had nothing left to give. I'm fixing to put Pop-Tarts out for these women to eat because that's the only food I have in the house. And I remember I was sitting at my kitchen table. I got up to wash the dish the dog had licked in my sink, and I just started crying out to God. It's like, God, I got nothing. I can't give what you haven't given me, and I don't have anything. And all I could say, this is I'm not exaggeration, not exaggerating, was Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. And the most amazing thing happened. The Holy Spirit came. He says, if you will call to me, I will answer you. If you, I stand at the door and knock, he is ready. All he wants is an invitation. And I felt the Holy Spirit in that moment, and it filled me up enough. We have this life group meeting, and a woman in the life group, she's sharing a testimony. She says, well, I wasn't going to share this, but let me say this. And now I was ready to cancel life group like 45 minutes before. And I, get, I do this for a living. <laughs> I was done. And she says, I wasn't going to share this, but last week I had been dealing with an issue for nine years in my life. I lost a baby when I was 19. And I've been angry at God for seven years. I've been angry at God. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't let it go. And I left this life group after a woman gave her testimony. I went home, got on my knees, and was broken before the Lord. And y'all aren't going to believe this, but he healed me. Seven years of bitterness are gone. And I am a new woman I had absolutely nothing to do with that. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he is able to minister in a way that exceeds your wildest expectations, your wildest imaginations. All he needs is a heart that is faithful and obedient. He longs to bless his people and his eyes search for worshipers so that he can do it. And Mary ends up in the Christmas story because she shows us that when you're just an ordinary person on an ordinary day, the Holy Spirit can show up and change somebody's life, can change humanity's life, can change the course of history like that. And the Christmas story tells us when you're an ordinary person on an ordinary day, all you need is a little bit of the Holy Spirit and to get out of the way. And that's how she ends up in the Christmas story, in Matthew's story of mercy. So when you're reading this story, I, I went back and I finally saw the thread of mercy that was in every person's story. 3,000 years of relatives, 28 generations, and they each had one thing in common. The mercy of God intervened at just the right time. And that same mercy is available to you and I today. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you need mercy, but I'm here to tell you that is what Christmas was all about. 
There are some things that only God can do. There are some things that only his intervention will change. And his mercy is new every morning, and it is limitless. And there's nothing you can do to run through it. There's no bottom to it, and there's nothing you can do to deserve it. It's just there because it is in the very DNA and the very nature of our God to be merciful. And that's what I love about the Christmas story. So our good friend Matthew, he gets down here to verse 18, and he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place under these circumstances, colon. I love this guy. He's a tax collector, right? Let me just get to the heart of the matter. Let me just get to the skinny. Here's how it happened, people. When his mother Mary had been promised in marriage to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And her promised husband, Joseph, being a just and upright man and not willing to expose her publicly to shame and disgrace, decided to dismiss her or divorce her quietly and secretly. But as he was thinking this over, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, descendant of David, I love that. Matthew tells us who all his kin are, and then he reminds Joseph of who his kin are. Joseph, descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. This is the part I love in the Amplified Bible. He will prevent them from failing and missing the true end and scope of life. He will prevent them from failing and missing the true scope of life. That is the Christmas story. That is the mercy of Matthew's Christmas Carol. 